Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for joining me once again. Today, my guest is Michael Streiskuth. He has written Outlaw, Waylon, Willie, Chris, and the Renegades of Nashville, which was published by It Books in 2013. As we stand now in July, it is currently the number one book in the country music category on Amazon, and with good reason. Streithguth has done a yeoman's job in tracing back the roots of this very important aspect of country music history into the 1960s. In it, he argues that artists such as Patsy Cline, established very successful singers, would have had very little say in the 1960s about who would be producing their records, engineering their records, writing the songs that would actually be played on their records, and the like. Um, This was part of the culture of Nashville at the time. Even the biggest artists had very little say or little creative control, as we would call today. Strikethrough shows, though, by the early 1970s, there was a true rebellion afoot being led by men like Waylon, Willie, and Chris, who came to challenge the norms of Nashville. In doing so, they not only declared artistic independence by making some genre-defining albums in the 1970s, they also came to define themselves and be defined by the popular culture as outlaws who were not just rebelling against the norms of Nashville, but really rebelling against the norms of society as we would imagine in uh, the rock genre. So when you saw men like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings indulge in drugs and the uh, three gentlemen endure difficult marriages and the like, this all fed into this image of them as rebels and outlaws. And in the end, Strife Goose shows that the legacy of these gentlemen lives on today in country music through his discussion of a number of important artists. So with that, I'm going to step out of the way and turn to the interview. Hi, Mike. Hey, Greg. Great to be with you. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Welcome to New Books and Pop Music. And uh, for those listening, I'm talking to Mike Streisguth, who has written this wonderful book called Outlaw, Waylon, Willie, and Chris, and the Renegades of Nashville, which just came out. And um, I thought we'd start with our traditional first question, which is to have you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, I live in Syracuse, New York. I was uh, uh, brought up in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, which was very rich um, as far as country music and bluegrass, as well as blues and rhythm and blues. So that was the beginning of my musical education. And I've been writing about uh, artists uh, mostly uh, in country music since the mid-1990s. My first book was a biography of Eddie Arnold, and then I went on to uh, write three books about Johnny Cash. So that's been uh, Cash has been an interest of mine for a long time. And this book, Outlaw, really came about a couple of years ago when the film Crazy Heart, starring Jeff Bridges, mm. came out. And and I was struck by Bridges' performance. I, it just reminded me so much of uh, what I believed uh, Waylon Jennings to be like. Right. And and Waylon 
I was dead several. You had been dead several years at that point, and I thought, gee, you know, I think people are forgetting about Waylon. Um, his um, his his name hadn't uh, continued to resonate in the way, say, that Johnny Cash has had. And so I, I began uh, investigating uh, Waylon's career with the possibility of a writing project. And it was Waylon who really opened the subject of outlaws to me. Um, so. Expanded that project to include uh, Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. Yeah, I um, I have to tell you that I have been uh, a fan of country music, but not someone who would have really, I think, understood um, about the long trajectory that you laid out so nicely in the book about the traditional Nashville sound of the '60s and then how outlaw country came to challenge that. Could you explain a little bit about that? In in Nashville, where most country music was was produced in the 1960s, uh, there was certainly a formula. Um, the, the, the industry was controlled by a handful of major record labels. Um, uh, producers were uh, very much at the, the helm, controlling virtually every aspect of, of the system, a, a lot like a, a, a studio, a major Hollywood studio, right. um, where there are contract actors, and the actors do what the directors and the producers uh, want them to do. Well, this was a lot like Nashville in, in, the, in the 60s, and uh, a lot of great music. I'm not, I'm not uh, demeaning the music, uh, but there was certainly a, a certain formula. The uh, the, the um, sessions were uh, produced often with the same uh, studio musicians and back background vocals right. vocalists who were on all of the other sessions. Right. And Chet Atkins, who was uh, Waylon and Willie's uh, producer in the 1960s, um, by and large uh, uh, applied that formula to 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 these men. And I think that is well, what they began to um, rail against uh, in the late 1960s and early 70s. Right. Uh, Waylon particularly uh, wanted more control over his uh, recording sessions. He wanted to record with the musicians, the backing musicians of his choice. He wanted to record his own songs or the songs that he selected. And he wanted to record in the studios of his preference. And he was able to demand all of that in uh, an RCA contract uh, in the early 1970s. And, and that was really one of the, uh, the, the first, I, I suppose, um, signs of independence among some of the major artists right. uh, uh, in Nashville. Now, I, I do have to add that uh, there was one artist in Nashville who had been doing things this way for a long time. And that was Johnny Cash. Right. Uh, Cash had um, a, a lot of independence. Uh, he, he could do things the way he wanted, um, and 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 for that reason, I think he he really is. Uh, I think can be considered the, the godfather of the the outlaw movement. I um I just have been uh, working my way through a, a book about. Um Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album. And um, the one thing that really struck me about Willie Nelson, I wanted to go through each of these individuals, um, Nelson Christofferson and Waylon Jennings. But what really struck me about Willie Nelson was that, you know, he was someone who had a, a string of, I'd say, um, less than successful records. Maybe I'm not quite right about that during the 1960s. And just like Fleetwood Mac, 
um, Nelson was sort of allowed to, to sort of keep recording albums until he finally broke through, until he finally found the formula that worked as Fleetwood Mac did with Rumors. And it's, it's really was striking to me thinking about what the music industry turned into. I mean, the, the pop music industry writ large by the 1990s, whereas if you didn't hit right away, the, um, Basically, the shareholders would would demand that these bands be dumped, and so there was no chance for an artist to develop. Can you can you talk a little bit about Willie Nelson's journey to artistic success by the sixties, late sixties, and early seventies? I guess. Well, you make a very good point that record labels were willing to groom artists. Uh, Chet Atkins signed Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and other artists like uh, Connie Smith, um, uh, Porter Wagner. And they were personally invested right. in moving these artists to uh, success and were willing to, uh, Chet was, was willing to take the time that it needed. And, and I want to say something uh, about Willie's work during the 1960s. Um, some classic recordings um, uh, that uh, Healing Hands of Time, right. um, I'm Going to Get Drunk, uh, some great honky-tonk music. Um, that, that that never really broke over the line into uh, commercial success, uh, but but I, I do want to say that I, I think Chet Atkins understood that Willie Nelson was a unique and talented songwriter, as as well as a, um, a very capable um, vocalist. And if you listen to some of those recordings, uh, Chet does stray from that formula. Chet does try to do some interesting things uh, sonically uh, in, in the in the studios um, uh, musical arrangements that, that aren't quite the stock musical arrangements that you might hear on other recordings so so I think he understood Nelson's talent uh, and, and tried to do something with it uh, but but uh, for whatever reason and maybe the public just wasn't ready uh, or maybe the, the record label wasn't willing to promote Willie to the extent that he needed to be promoted um, he, he just um, found that commercial success elusive, right. and it's it, it's it's really thanks to Waylon Jennings that that, that Willie I think uh, asserts his independence in the studio. Um, Willie also picks up on the vibe of the times, the late sixties and earlier seven early seventies. Things were uh, a little bit looser. Right. Um, he, he begins to change his appearance. He, he yes. goes, of course, to Austin. And finds this cosmic cowboy thing going on. So, um, the, the, I think I, I, I say in, in the book that, that Willie goes from looking like a, a, a traveling insurance agent uh, to the leader of a back to nature pod. You know, his, his 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 beard grows. He, he dons uh, plaid shirts and jeans and, and tennis shoes. puts on a cowboy hat from time to time. And so. Actually, Willie was managed by the same manager who who worked with Waylon Jennings, Neil Reshin, a, a, a New York accountant. And Reshin demanded the same kind of independence for Willie in the studio that uh, that, that Waylon enjoyed. Right. And and you hear um, Willie um, be, beginning to be um, just a, a, a little bit more free and easy as a vocalist. Um, not so concerned with uh, enunciating every word, um, uh, picking up the tempo a lot on mm -hmm. music. And uh, by 1975, when he's signed to Columbia Records, he records Redheaded Stranger, right. uh, uh, which is this uh, album like no other in, in Willie's repertory up to that point. Uh, the, the arrangements were quite sparse. 
um, the there was a, a story. It was uh, clearly a, a kind of concept album, uh, which had become so popular um, that that uh, genre had become so popular at that point, and uh, it became a blockbuster, and was really the first blockbuster of the the so-called outlaw movement. You know, uh, what was uh, I was going to say too is um, you were you were I was going to bring it up. The pictures in the book. There's some really really great, very good candid shots of. of um, all the figures in the book, but the Willie Nelson shot I'm thinking of, I, I, I'd pull out the page number, but I will never find it now. But it, yes, exactly. He looks, he looks exactly like a pharmacist or something like that. Uh, um, maybe that's the wrong, wrong profession for Willie Nelson. But I have to tell you that um, I had the pleasure of seeing Willie open up for uh, Dave Matthews Band uh, about two or three years ago here in Tulsa. And it's really remarkable, not, of course, just the appearance, um, but that you couldn't be more mainstream, really, I think, in some ways, than Dave Matthews Band. And it was a absolutely um, loving embrace by the crowd by Willie Nelson, unlike a lot of opening acts where, you know, people wander in and out and there's a sort of half-hearted interest. There was a very, very enthusiastic and um, just an embrace of Willie Nelson, sort of to see his journey from a guy who was, as you point out, sort of, I don't want to say on the fringes, but had never really had that big success, as you point out, to a redheaded stranger. Well, Willie's been able to collect this uh, wildly diverse audience. I mean, uh, everybody from your grandmother um, to uh, you know, teenagers right. um, are kind of attracted to uh, Willie and his his attitude and uh, his free and easy way of of, of communicating his songs, uh, and and that's largely because um, he has refused to stay. Um, connected to one formula. Right. He's not afraid to drag out standards or to record duets uh, with rap and hip-hop artists. Right. So it, it all means that he's reaching this this um, uh, audiences of, of all stripes. Yeah. Um, the, the next person I wanted to, to touch upon was someone, again, who I really thought I knew a lot about, um, but actually I didn't really know very much about this person at all, and that's Chris Christopherson. I... I um, I'm someone who has his earliest movie memories in the 1970s. I was born in 1969, and I remember Convoy, and I remember these other movies that he showed up in. And to find out, as your book shows, that Chris Christopherson was, in fact, a uh, Rhodes Scholar, was a uh, person who had imagined himself in a career in the military, and then had written Me and Bobby McGee, which I just did not know that, was really a series of revelations. Um, Talk a little bit about him. Well, Christofferson just turned Nashville on his ear. Um, he had come to the city in the mid-1960s hoping to be a songwriter. Uh, it took him a while to catch on. But then he meets uh, a man named Fred Foster, um, who I, I think is one of the unsung heroes in country music. Right. Uh, Fred, Fred Foster had signed uh, Roy Orbison right. and made his career. He had signed Dolly Parton when nobody else would have her. He actually signed Willie Nelson in the early 60s and recorded him. This was the only time in the 60s he had been recorded in the kind of setting that uh, predicted the redheaded stranger. Um, so it was, it was Fred Foster who gives Christofferson a, a platform. He signs Christofferson to a recording contract, and he also signs him to a publishing deal. And it was, it was, it was the 
Bob Beckham, who ran the publishing company, who began to get Christopherson songs to really big artists yeah. like Ray Price and Johnny Cash and Roger Miller. Uh, so the, the the next thing, this this um, this songwriter who was really more in a Dylan kind of template, uh, not a Harlan Howard uh, uh, or Hank Williams template, uh, as many country writers were, um, who uh, uh, begins to have this great success um, uh, with other artists recording his material. Um, he finally is uh, uh, playing at, uh, at clubs in the East Coast and the West Coast and then all around the world. Right. Uh, so his career takes off very quickly. Um, but he brought this, this maturity to... Um, uh, uh, to, to Nashville and to country music. And when I say maturity, I mean in terms of the, the content of the, of the lyrics, uh, sensual love, um, uh, uh, battles with personal demons. Um, and uh, he also brings kind of a Dylan sensibility. Right. So uh, all of a sudden, disc jockeys decide that, hey, it's, you know, it might be an okay thing to, to play this music that does sound a little bit like, like Bob Dylan. But uh, in his wake... Um, so many other writers were uh, inspired, mm. and he really pushed the bound the boundaries of of, of what a country song was. Right, you know, and your book does a really good job, I think, of showing too how his career really I don't want to I don't know go off the rails or just because he just drifts artistically. And um, I couldn't help but but wonder if you think it was his Hollywood career that derailed his music career in some ways by the late 1970s. There are many people who, who would say that the, the minute Chris went to Hollywood and became uh, really absorbed in his, his film career, uh, that his, his songwriting began to suffer and his right. recording career began to suffer. And um, I, 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 of course, writing the book forced me to get deeper into uh, Christopherson's catalog uh, than I, I would have been. Uh, otherwise, and and I find that there is still some uh, very poignant uh, music uh, in the catalog. Uh, there is still uh, very uh, dramatic uh, stories told uh, in his work, and and some of the some of that music from the mid seventies and later on in the seventies is is on par with the work from the late sixties and and the early seventies. Um, Christopherson, of course, would say that um, there was no difference that that his songwriting would not have. Um, uh, been different at all had he stayed in Nashville. Right. So it's it's really difficult to say. I, I think certainly uh, we have to accept that that's a possibility. That in fact Chris could not do it all. Um, he he couldn't be a an A list film actor and an A list songwriter at the same time. That that something had to give. Right. And, um, and clearly there is a a, a, a demarcation point. Right. That, um, his. Um, his his popularity um, uh, begins to suffer when he goes to to Hollywood. His popularity as a as a songwriter and recording artist. Um, I, I want to uh, talk about um, the prodigious uh, substance consumption of these gentlemen in a second. But I wanted to just uh, kind of think about something else too. That all the all of these men had their different issues. But I, I, do you think? I mean, this may not have been um, something you you uh, touched on a great deal in the book. But do you think that uh, in speaking about Wayland, that the sort of hesitancy of his label to give him control had to do with his um, his vices, or do you think that was much more of a product, as you say, of this the Nashville system of this is not how we do things? Well, you know, Chet Atkins and Wayland Jennings. Uh, were 
at constant odds right. over Whalen's uh, consumption of amphetamines. Right. Um, uh, there is some evidence that, that, that Chet may have looked the other way at, uh, at, at marijuana consumption, but when it came to amphetamines, I think he had seen what the uh, what amphetamine consumption had done to artists all around Nashville. I mean, uh, these were artists who were out on uh, weeks-long tours, who needed to be up um, every night for sh- for shows, um, and and who took those amphetamines to stay awake, uh, to, to, to stay on top of their game. Right. And so it was rampant. Everybody did. In fact, Richie Albright, who was, drummer, who was uh, Waylon's drummer, said, you know, everybody walked around with their... Uh, their, their pockets sounding like a pharmacy. Um, uh, they had so many pills uh, right. around them. And, and so I do think that that, uh, that may have affected Chet's approach to, to, to Waylon. Right. Um, but but I, I really can't be sure about that. And I, I do think, though, that, that, that Waylon had been yearning for this independence for a long time. Uh, and, and I think in the end... The, again, the times were changing. Um, uh, it was very common by the late 60s and early 70s for uh, rock and folk artists to enjoy you know, complete artistic control. Right. That just hadn't gotten to Nashville right. yet. And, and I think it was really just a kind of a resignation on RCA's uh, part that this is the way the industry was going and it was time to get with it. And right. In fact, things changed dramatically for the recording industry in Nashville after artists in Wayland's Wake uh, began controlling their, their their sessions. All of a sudden, uh, producers for big labels were out of jobs, and and big labels closed their studios because uh, the artists were were doing things independently, and those big labels merely became uh, kind of marketers of of music. In the uh, this is sort of a side a side note here, but I was really um, struck by the fact that you. Um you really showed the the way that, if I remember correctly, for example, the studio engineers were all unionized, and when this new regime comes in, it, it's it's uh, there's a fight to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is we're studio musicians, we're studio techs, this is our livelihood, and this is the way the game has been played. You can't go um, changing everything up. But, but once again, the industry had to put its foot down. In fact, Jerry Bradley, who was head of A and R um, in Chet's. Uh, wake after Chet left in the early 1970s, uh, finally said, "Look, I, I would like to take care of your jobs, but 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 the industry is not going to stand still um, uh, in order to preserve your jobs. So consequently, he had to let go a number of, of engineers. I mean, I think there are a number of engineers around Nashville today who are driving taxi cabs and right. uh, cutting meat in supermarkets um, because of what happened in the 1970s. That's really interesting. Yeah, the um, the uh, the issue again of uh, uh, of drugs, and I, I was really um, taken by the fact that you um, observed that there was this moment where a certain DJ, and his name's escaping me, sort of was the one who sort of tagged the movement as the outlaw movement or the outlaw country. Um, but on the other hand, as you, as you point out all through the book, these guys were not exactly um, your your straight laced musicians uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So, how do you did you sort of come to work that out in your own mind about this sort of obvious marketing that goes along with any music genre that the labels do to sort of create a uh, image around the musicians and the reality of how these guys actually were and creating the um, image of the outlaw musician in the minds of people in the 1970s in America. Yeah, I, I think it's important to acknowledge 
that the the outlaw thing was a marketing label. Right. Uh, that, as you say, um, um, Hazel Smith, who later became a well-known country music columnist, uh, worked at the Glazer Sound Studios, where Waylon did a lot of his work in the in the 1970s. She also um, booked uh, 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 Waylon and Willie and other the art other artists, um, and uh, uh, the disc jockey asked her, you know, "What do you call these guys?" And, and she said, "Well." Outlaws, mm. and uh, the term had actually um, shown up uh, around that time, also in journalistic pieces. Mm-hmm. And of course, Waylon had recorded the song "Ladies Love Outlaws," right. so the term was out there. And and but 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 the, the industry grabbed it very quickly, and uh, and it became a label. And right. I think that uh, you, you know, yes, these men were outlaws. They, they're they're they were wild. Yeah. Um, they, they broke from tradition. Um, but it was, I think, uh, overplayed. And, and I, I think it was important uh, for me, writing this book, to acknowledge that, um, you know, there were other outlaws. Um, mm-hmm. You didn't have to dress up like a cowboy um, and get busted for drugs in order to be an outlaw, although that's what the industry would have liked. Um, um, you know, outlaw, to me, was about uh, pursuing the music the way it sounded in your head according to your own vision. Right. And in, in Nashville, you began seeing so much of that in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, uh, there was such ferment in Nashville, uh, uh, aspiring songwriters and musicians coming to town because they'd been inspired by Christofferson or Johnny Cash's television show, which was produced in Nashville. Um, and, and they, uh, uh, they uh, brought a freedom to, to to Nashville and um, and I think because of that uh, we got to call them outlaws too because they right. they, they pushed the barriers of, um, of 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 what the industry had erected um, they, they pushed the, the barriers that the industry had erected at that time right and, and I should say too the book does a really good job you did a really good job of of sketching out the the context in Nashville um, as a historian of course I know well about the era of Vietnam and the civil rights movement and all of the ferment that came out of that. But you, you really have done uh, good work in, in showing even in uh, what, what some might have considered a conservative bastion of the old South, there was this um, counterculture that was circulating and really embedded around Vanderbilt University. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's give Nashville some credit. <laughs> the, the, the 60s did finally come to town. Right. And, and I, think, uh, I think many people want to exclusively associate Austin, Texas, uh, with the outlaws, and you know we can't discount that that Austin was key. It, it inspired Willie Nelson, and and all of these primary outlaws were were uh, Texas born. Uh, uh, Rodney Crowell, Townsend Van, Chris, Willie Whalen, they they all came from Texas. But but there was something happening in Nashville right. uh, that that deserves uh, attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I it was really um, a pleasure to see that in uh, in the book because i you know i read a lot of rock biographies obviously and you can you can um sort of burrow into your figures and sort of lose sight of the bigger picture and it really was uh was nice to see that because it's an important part of your story and really speaks to what made as you say nashville uh, a maybe a place in the country that hasn't gotten its full due when it comes to this story um thinking now about two figures that really i think drift in and out of the narrative very very nicely and and Clearly, hearing early on that you're a uh, 
a student of uh, Johnny Cash and someone who's written books on Johnny Cash. Can you talk a little bit about the way that Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash fit into this story that you're telling? They sort of reappear and then recede. Dylan and Cash were, were important, I think, in Nashville because they they broke with the the way things were done in Nashville. And, and people might say, what, what did Bob Dylan have to do with Nashville? Well, Dylan came to Nashville and recorded three albums in, in the 1960s, um, starting with Blonde on Blonde. And it, it, Dylan didn't come to Nashville and, and, and do things the way that Don Law, who was running the, uh, the Columbia office mm-hmm. in Nashville, you know, wanted him to do it. Dylan came with his own vision. And uh, he didn't care about the studio clock. Um, he, he chose the artists that, that he wanted to work with. And this was, this was really a wake-up call. Um, uh, first of all, the, the artists he used were not the traditional A-list session people. Right. They were a younger crop of Nashville pickers, including Charlie Daniels um, um, and uh, people like that. And because of Dylan, those session musicians gained new prominence in Nashville, and so their sounds began to um, drift into the work of, of, of other artists in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, 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 just the very idea that Nashville, that, that Dylan was recording in Nashville, was very important. And then, of course, Cash comes along, and as I said earlier, he's, he's, he's a recording according to his own vision also. But then uh, he, he becomes uh, something of a sponsor for... Um, Many of these young singer-songwriters, uh, we already talked about uh, Christofferson. He records uh, Sunday Morning Coming Down and makes it his own song almost. Um, but, but Cash also uh, records the music of Vince Matthews, who's another young songwriter in town. And his television show featured the, the, the work of, of so many young singer-songwriter mm-hmm. types. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a, 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 an era in Nashville from 69 to 71 when Cash had that show that right. really deserves uh, um, even much more attention than I give it. Um, uh, young singer-songwriters mingling with uh, old country music veterans, um, communicating that, um, you know what, there was something cool going on in Nashville. Uh, so, so Dylan and Cash uh, really, I think, helped change the way people thought about Nashville and the way that the business was done in Nashville. And they were magnets. They, they, they brought people to the city um, to, to explore, um, much as, um, you know, say, a, a Kurt Cobain probably attracted people to Seattle right. uh, many years later. Uh, so they, 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 they really are important for, uh, for that reason. And, of course, you know, Dylan didn't come back to Nashville. Cash stayed um, and uh, continued to be uh, a link to what was going on in the streets um, uh, or the underground of, of Nashville. And, right. you know, Cash had, had recorded the, the album at Folsom Prison, which um, became a huge national bestseller. Right. And th- there was a danger to, to that uh, album. And I think the rock audience uh, woke up to Cash during that period. And consequently, the, the rock audience uh, woke up to Nashville. Right. You mentioned Charlie Daniels and um, provides me a really good segue into the next issue I want to talk to you about, which is that um, I, uh, as I was born in 1969, so I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, MTV was in the house, and I remember very distinctly seeing um, Charlie Daniels' video still in Saigon. Of course, remembered um, Devil Went Down to Georgia, but there was this um, 
moment in the early 1980s where Vietnam suddenly became an issue in pop music in a way that I think it hadn't really been since the maybe the early uh, 70s at sort of the tail end of, of Vietnam. And you saw even country music artists like um, Charlie Daniels having their their political moment, so to speak. And I was actually really quite surprised that um, you didn't see any of these gentlemen speak out or eagerly engage in uh, discussions with journalists or whatever about Vietnam. What do you th- what do you think drove that silence in some ways? Well, I think uh, in, in in country music anyway, um, it's it's never been very popular to be political, right? Uh, and uh, we saw what happened, for example, to the Dixie Chicks when right. they were political. The, their their audience, uh, sadly, t- turned against them. Right. And and, and I so I, I think there's there's that to to consider. I think the '80s, the moment you're talking about, was a time when Vietnam was uh, being reconsidered right. uh, by by our country. Um, and so you saw not only songs dealing with Vietnam. But, but but many films right. uh, as well of Apocalypse Now and then you know right on down the line Full Metal Jacket et cetera et cetera. Um, so and the other thing I you know I talked to Christopherson about that and about politics and his music and, and he said you know we, we just weren't political we we were there it was all about the music it was right. all about uh, the freedom to write what we wanted to write and and you know in, in Nashville. There, there was this political ferment. There was uh, this very active civil rights movement. Right. Um, there did emerge at the end of the '60s an anti-war element, right. uh, but but, but uh, the, the artists weren't paying a whole lot of attention to that. Um, and I, I think, uh, uh, to some extent, uh, it was maybe a little bit more self-indulgent uh, than uh, than we might have seen in wider folk circles and rock circles, right. uh, for example. Right. And, and as you as you point out in the book, though, Christopherson does have his political moment in the believe in the early nineteen eighties, maybe late seventies, and he he sounds like, to, if I understood your um, argument correctly in the book, he paid a price for that. Well, he did, and I, I, th- I think to me, what was very appealing about Christopherson um, is that even as some of his, um, uh, well, even as some aspects of his career were uh, kind of in decline. Um, his film career, his, right. his, his recording career, um, he remained true to that that spirit of late '60s and early '70s uh, uh, West End Nashville, um, and uh, begin speaking out, uh, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, on American involvement in Central America. Uh, he begins uh, speaking out for the United Farm Workers, and he becomes very active that way. And yes, uh, some some of his audience, uh, particularly on the issue of Central America. Reagan policy. Let's not forget, Reagan was a very popular president. Yep. Uh, naturally, some of his audience uh, turned against him, and uh, so you're 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 quite right. Um, he did pay a price for uh, for for being vocal. Right, and so um, the the entire sort of spectrum then of of country music in the 1960s would have seen very few artists. Just so I understand, and everyone else listening understands that who would have really taken the stand of so many musicians in rock and folk, as you pointed out. Um, the one song I can think of is uh, what Ruby "Don't Take Your Love to Town," which is sort of an anti-war. It is an anti-war song, I think. Um, but is, is that correct that it wasn't just these gentlemen? It was just sort of the industry writ large. Yeah, I, I think it was. I think the, the industry discouraged um, uh, political commentary, and Waylon, in fact, recorded "Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town." Right. 
in in the 1960s. But I think in some ways uh, the audience looked at that more as a kind of a cheating song yeah. than, than it did an anti-war song. Right. Uh, you got to spend some time with that that song to, to to really get to its 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 core. So it wasn't uh, very direct or literal in in its in its message. But uh, but uh, you know you got to give uh, Waylon for for um, got to give him credit for taking it on. Uh, but. I'm just not sure how much of a risk that actually was. It's interesting you pointed out. I teach a course on uh, on the Vietnam War, and we spend time in class talking a lot about the music of the of the period. And, and the way you're describing Ruby reminds me a lot of how students uh, think about "Born in the USA" by Bruce Springsteen. And still, until they read the lyrics, you know, they sort of go, "Oh, I always heard this song in the you know sort of classic rock radio and assumed it was a big you know uh, pro USA uh, song." But when they read the lyrics, they realize it's a very different um, message going on. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other uh, point I wanted to touch on in terms of the um, the book is the um, issue of the South being sort of what would I say um, resurrected in some ways in the in the minds of Americans as a, um, a you know sort of welcome back after the the bitterness of the civil rights movement. Um, you quote Bruce Shulman in the book, um, and if I remember correctly, in his book he talks a lot about how bands like Leonard Skinner and uh, the Outlaws and the Allman Brothers sort of were part of this re embrace of the South by America writ large. Um, and it seems like you you making a similar case in the book about um, outlaw country. I do. I, th- I think the, the I think many embraced outlaw country as a kind of a, a, a South's going to rise again. The South's going to rise again type of um, of of, um, of of attitude, um, and and I think in, interpreted the defiance, say, of a Waylon Jennings or a David Allen Coe um, as a Southern, a uniquely Southern defiance, um, and and I think. In um, to, to, to some extent, that that caught on not just in the South, but uh, but nationally. Um, uh, there there was uh, uh, I think uh, a, a feeling of uh, not just a Southern feeling, but a, a national feeling of uh, wanting to return to something different, um, mm-hmm. a time that had preceded the, the the civil rights movement or the the, the Vietnam War when. Uh, when 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 America was uh, was stronger and uh, uh, more more assertive, uh, so so yeah, I, I do think there's a there's a mingling there of that um, that South's going to rise again attitude uh, with with the uh, with the outlaws, and I, I think you think of somebody like Hank Williams Jr., right. um, who's uh, in his music is is um, you know, quite uh, jingoistic, I think sometimes mm-hmm. um, uh, many associate Williams with that. Uh, outlaw movement, uh, and so to the extent that that um, that Hank Williams Jr. and the Outlaws are, are kind of intertwined, um, you might say that in some ways uh, jingoism and the outlaw movement is is kind of intertwined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all a matter of perception. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that that's that that fits exactly with with what I would say. Um, my understanding of the period is it's it's interesting. Um, you know, students now will uh, occasionally look at pictures of Leonard Skinner to be surprised about the Confederate flag. And of course it's, it's um, maybe taken on a little bit different of a, of a, of a tone that it had for a lot of people in the 1970s, but it's, it is a, I think also fitting in perfectly with your discussion of uh, Jimmy Carter um, and his ascension to the presidency. Can you talk a little bit about how that all played out with the outlaw movement? 
J- Jimmy Carter was not afraid to embrace musicians um, to uh, move along his candidacy. Right. Um, and he particularly um, uh, made uh, uh, alliances or established alliances with, with Willie Nelson, um, uh, also uh, uh, Johnny Cash to, 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 to some extent. And, and I think he would acknowledge that it was those alliances that, that helped bring him to a younger generation and, and helped him to, to get elected. And, and I think um, uh, clearly the, 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 the rise of Jimmy Carter was tied up um, with um, the demise of, of, of Richard Nixon. It was a, a, a backlash um, at, in the wake of, of, of Watergate. Right. And, and I think that... Um, uh, people all across um, America were, were willing to em- embrace Carter for, uh, for for that reason, and and I think I, I looked at Carter's ascent uh, within the context of Nashville, which uh, Nashville had uh, welcomed uh, Richard Nixon wholeheartedly. I mean, even the, in the last days of his presidency, when you know he was rejected right, everywhere, right. he he opened the new Opry House in Nashville and was welcomed like a hero. And and I think uh, in a way the, the the support of 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 Jimmy Carter helped Nashville um, atone for its sins. Um, I think uh, uh, Carter was the um, uh, you know Car- Carter carried Nashville in a national election, which was actually very close. He carried Nashville by a very wide uh, right. margin. Right, and, and you have that wonderful uh, anecdote in the in the book of uh, just so everyone. Uh, out there knows you, you should uh, pick up this book for these types of stories that uh, Nixon went on stage, if I remember correctly, and played the piano in front of an adoring crowd. That's right. And then, and then the next day, um, particularly the Nashville Banner, one of the daily papers, which is now defunct, um, uh, really just uh, drooled over Nixon um, and uh, made no room at all to discuss the, the, the context in which all of this was happening Nashville visit that is, which was Watergate. Right, so. right, and, and again, I think that maybe um, helps explain the, the hesitancy again about about Vietnam and these other issues. Is that Nixon was popular I- throughout the South, um, you know, and that, I think that's probably was was part of what was was going on, as you say too. It just didn't like is pointing out the Dixie Chicks examples. The perfect the perfect cautionary tale that comes later is that if if you speak out, you can really alienate a lot of people, and it probably was just um, safer artistically just to sort of lay low on these these issues, regardless of their uh, personal or private feelings on it. Yeah, and you know, Carter, the, the acceptance of Carter is also. Um, Indicative of the changes uh, in Nashville and the changes elsewhere. I mean, this right. was a guy who, right? He, he admitted that he lusted after right. women. Uh, he he was going to come in uh, advocating um, uh, the abolishment of any kind of penalties for um, possession of small amounts of marijuana. Um, so, the, the, the I think the the rise of Carter in, in a way, you know, rubber stamped uh, some some new thinking in America at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, that, that that new thinking was was in Nashville and and uh, uh, it was important to to make that point. Uh, in in terms of of thinking about how this story sort of comes to a, an end in the book. And I, then I want to ask you, of course, about how they, the legacy of Outlaw Country. But um, wh- how do you see, in retrospect, the uh, Waylon Willie album with, of course, the Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys, which is such an iconic song. Um, is that sort of the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning of the, the movement? 
Well, it certainly was a, 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 a in a way, a surrender to the Waylon and Willie franchise. Right. Um, the, the, you know, Waylon and Willie knew, along with everybody else, that the the, the combination of these of, of their, the combination of, of of Waylon and Willie on record uh, sold records. Yes. And and so uh, it, it's it's becoming very commercial. Um, the, the the marketing label is 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 is, is out there. Um, it's selling a lot of records. It's becoming its own formula, and and I think I think um, Waylon, in the aftermath of the album that you're speaking of, um, begins to uh, be a little bit more vocal about uh, his his um, criticism of the, the the marketing angle. And he he talks about, of course, uh, don't you all think this outlaw bits done got out of hand? <laughs> right. That was that was a big hit for him. Right. And then Will, Willie. Willie decides to record in 1978 the album Stardust, um, an album of, of standards. And his his A and R guy, or the head of his label, Columbia, Rick Blackburn, says, "No, no, come on, we need more Waylon and Willie. You know, do the stuff that sells millions." And Willie says, "You know, huh, that's not what I want to do." And so uh, I think um, I think you're right that there's that kind of marks a, a turn uh, in the way that uh, Waylon and Willie are going. The um, the thing too, I think that fits right in here is the um, the the wider industry itself of course this is sort of the you know i was thinking the late 70s is maybe one of the one of the 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 peaks of excess and of of insane levels of record sales that will never be seen again i think about saturday night fever soundtrack selling something like 20 million copies in 1978 alone fleetwood mac rumors as already mentioned you know uh, this is this is part of this this um huge huge um growth in the industry and the Correct me if I'm wrong. Was was this the first platinum country record, or am I mistaken? Well, the the the, the first one um, was the compilation album that RCA had recorded okay. uh, or released in 1976, which was called "Wanted the Outlaws." Right, and that was a wake up call. And then, of course, on the heels of that comes uh, Stardust, and which is Willie's album. And I think the industry says. Wait a minute. We can sell millions of records on country artists, and, and that was very rare, very rare. And I think as a result, um, you begin to see um, less tolerance for what we talked about earlier, which was the artist who doesn't hit immediately. Right. Uh, so you see fewer artists being groomed by the labels. Right. Um, you see um, uh, more formula uh, at work than you had seen in ten years or so. And so it all comes back, um, um, this idea of trying to find a way to sell the most records possible right. um, really kind of it enjoys a resurgence, ironically, in the wake of the success of the Outlaws. Right. And, and, but, of course, this all culminates, as you, you well know, and sure, certainly everyone else listening who's a fan of music knows, with the 1990s with the Garth Brooks and the Shania Twains, this sort of mammoth, whatever you might want to call it, crossover success of these of country music in, in American life. And you just think how many uh, hat acts followed in Garth's wake and how many um, you know, sexy young um, artists with their belly buttons showing you know, come in the wake of Shania Twain. Right. I mean, it, they, they, they launched their own uh, uh, formulas. So. Right. The, uh, the legacy, what, you talk about this at the end of the book. Would you share a little bit with the listeners about what you think the legacy of Outlaw Country is for today? 
Well, I mean, I, I still think there are artists out there who are recording and are quite popular who are recording um, according to their own vision. And I think of, and in the country realm, and I'm thinking about people like Jamie Johnson and, and Zach Brown. Um, the, the, the idea that they're doing it the way they want to do mm-hmm. it has everything to do with the fact that Waylon and Willie did things the way they wanted to do it in the 1970s. Right. And so, and you have people like Jamie Johnson who are you know, very open in their admiration of, of Waylon and Willie. But, but I mean, even in the, the, the so-called alt-country music, right. uh, uh, the, 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 the independence, uh, the focus on the song and the importance of the song rather than a formula, um, the fact that that, 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 that lives and burns um, very strongly, uh, I think has a lot to do with um, what had happened in Nashville in the late 60s and the early 70s. And um, I say very early on in the book that Willie Nelson himself uh, may be one of the most important um, uh, legacies of the outlaw movement. I mean, he, he has really become the living, breathing symbol of country music and the link to the the great standards of, of, of music, many of which he wrote, and the link to the Texas honky-tonk where country music lived for so long. He kind of em- embodies, in a way, uh, authenticity. Certainly Christofferson's uh, songwriting, which pushed the envelope, in the late early 60s and early 70s um, that that lives on today um, when uh, there is um, music that is is not afraid to you know to to, to be controversial right uh, that has something to do with with Christofferson as well you know i hadn't hadn't thought about that until you you brought this up but that's a really excellent point you're making about willie being the sort of the in, in some ways the last man standing and i know christofferson is still with us but he isn't as active as willie and you know, it's almost, I think you're right, is that these individuals become a touchstone for people just like I'm a big fan of uh, 60s and 70s classic slash blues rock and, you know, going to see Eric Clapton, regardless of what I think of his his uh, latest release, is a matter of sort of uh, reaching out and touching that era that is that is gone that I never got to connect with. And I think I think that's that's really an important point about Nelson. I, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you. Um I like that new Clapton album, by the way. No, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take a moment with that. Yeah, my, my wife is a, a bigger fan of it than I am, but um, you know, he is is, is against these one of these gentlemen who, yeah, they sort of just loom so large in Jeff Beck and, and uh, Jimmy Page, of course, as well. But they, but you, um, you just really highlighted the fact that that, that Nelson is really, um, yeah, he is the he is keeping that alive in some ways for those people who were, were fans of that era. Uh, Waylon's no longer with us, of course. And uh, does Christofferson tour at all anymore? Oh, sure. He's, he's out there right now. Oh, he is. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's just not playing to the same size audiences. Right. Um, his, rec- his records don't sell as much. In fact, his latest album was recorded on his own label. So he's gotten into, he's gotten into that uh, um, part of the industry. Right, right. Which, of course, is another whole, whole issue. The, 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 uh, whole, the whole notion of an artist being sort of held hostage by uh, a record label has long since long since passed us by. Um, tell us a bit about your, your next project and, and what you think you might work on next. Well, you know, that's, that, is, that is up in the air. I, I um, am, am kicking around a few ideas, but, but haven't come up uh, with, with anything right now. I'm uh, busy getting the word out about this, this, this book and um, uh, hoping that uh, 
people grab it and are inspired to look at the outlaws a little bit differently and to think about Nashville a little bit differently also. Yeah, I, I really have to say that I uh, really enjoyed the book a great deal. And anyone who has even um, sort of a, sort of an inkling of an interest in country music, I think you'd be really uh, taken by the, uh, the stories because it's uh, three remarkable gentlemen who uh, – who really, uh, yeah, made music history, and uh, and I think, Michael, again in closing, and just to be uh, to really give it its full due, I, I think in some ways that um, without your book, I think it, the the three of them together might be forgotten because as someone who's who's a a big music fan, and uh, you know, I know know a little bit about country music. I'm not sure I would tie those three men together because I didn't live through that era, and so to be able to sort of resurrect that moment in time is really uh, you deserve a lot of credit for that. Thanks very much, Greg. I appreciate that. Hey, you're quite welcome. All right, Michael, I'm going to let you go. I know you are on tour right now for the book, and uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Mike. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks. Hey, you're welcome. Take care. You've been listening to a conversation with Michael Streiskuth about his book, Outlaw, Waylon, Willie, Chris, and the Renegades of Nashville, published by It Books in 2013. Please tune in next time for the next episode of New Books and Popular Music or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you for listening.